0: Welcome to Anarchist and Androids. I am Logar the Barbarian, joined by my co-host, Parenthesis I. Oh, hello, everyone. I've got some questions for you. I, I, I've been into... We, we talk about, like, science fiction in these movies, and a lot of it's very much stuff that we grew up
1: with. How did you get into that stuff? Oh. <laughs> by <laughs> being... Born and raised in the United States. And so- <laughs> <since now. laughs>
0: I remember going to the when I was a kid, I would go to the supermarket with my mom and they would have the comic spinner racks. Remember those? Oh, yeah, yeah. I would beg
1: for them. Yeah, me too. And then again, then my
0: mom would capitulate and buy some. <laughs> <laughs> my mother very rarely did. I remember on a trip to my, my grandfather's, my father picked me some up every now and then they'd get me one but most of the time i had to find my own money to buy them however that was and, and a lot of times it started to be lawn mowing
1: <laughs> uh, yeah i've never like like going like through the woods and getting like old tin cans and then taking them to like recycling place and getting a little bit of money and i'd use that for comic books
0: I we so uh, I know how I got into like Star Wars was everywhere growing up and 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 we live in a great world. If you're into Star Wars and Marvel, grew up reading Marvel comics when we did. You know we're in our 40s now. Next step is 50. They got a lot of stuff out there geared towards me hitting
1: that nostalgia button. Yeah. Oh, th- yeah. They definitely they know that like people of our age demographic now have income sources and the ability to spend money on this stuff. <laughs> and we were trained as as little boys, you know, to, to want to buy this stuff.
0: Yeah. To be loyal consumers from the beginning. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think, a lot of the Saturday morning cartoons, yeah, Saturday morning cartoons don't even exist anymore because now it's just cartoons. <laughs> but like they, they, had so many cartoon shows that were like tied together with some action figure stuff that they would also advertise for during the cartoon blocks. My biggest
0: one outside of the Star Wars toys, my biggest Saturday morning cartoons was the was the Super Friends and Superpowers. Remember the line of Superpowers action figures. Yeah, and the, of course there was
1: also like He Man and, Ninja yeah. and all
0: this <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of the superpowers. I had the Hall of Justice. I had the Batmobile and the Probe One, <laughs> and most of the figures at some point in time. Yeah. So I'm also like, so our, let's just we're we're anarchists
1: and androids on this podcast. Why would we choose such a weird name? Oh, because yeah. Well, well I mean. For me, like I became an anarchist at about the age of seventeen, right. So mm-hmm. basically, my entire adult life I've been an anarchist. And for me, like when I discovered anarchist philosophy, well, I remember the first time that I really came across the philosophy, like it was uh, under the phrase libertarian socialist mm-hmm. and that phrase that combination libertarian socialist, it was like a light turning on for me because i liked libertarianism but i didn't like all the capitalist bullshit and i liked socialism but i didn't like all the you know paternalistic state bullshit and so like if you can have libertarian and socialist the best of both worlds it's like oh my god this is it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so like just reading anarchist philosophy it was like putting into words what i kind of subconsciously believed already uh, were there any specific
0: anarchist thinkers that influenced you, you'd say, more than others over that period in time?
1: For one, like, you know, reading the autobiography of Emma Goldman, you know, like mm-hmm. she had an amazing life. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and I, I loved, like, just for the joy of reading it, like, was uh, Bob Black, you know, mm-hmm. and his Anarchy After Leftism kind of post-left-anarchy stuff. Yeah. And and then, uh, of course, that classic anarchist, unfinished anarchist text, uh, God in the State by Mikhail Bakunin. Oh, yes. I love that. And and that helps eliminate the last vestiges of belief in God for me.
0: (laughs) It took me a while to get there because I embraced the old anarchism when I was still seeking out some kind of... So I didn't become an anarchist as a teenager. I was raised in a very conservative household. I was... We were a very Reagan family. The first person I voted for... I don't even want to admit to it. My first presidential election, do you have any idea who I voted for? Uh oh, probably
1: probably Reagan, right? I mean, no, no. it wasn't a real election. Uh, right?
0: I, no, was it was it, it was a presidential election. It was it was uh it was Bob Dole. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, I remember that. Yeah, Bob Dylan like, Clinton. Out. Yeah, yeah. According to my family, growing up, like Clinton was was the Antichrist, and you couldn't do that. You're getting over, it. he's terrible. So I, I'll freely admit it. I voted for Bob in my first election because that's why. That's what I would had been. I was. I was raised to fear this idea. These evil Democrats are coming to get you. But over time, I, you know, I went into the Marine Corps. I started to question some of the things that I had been programmed with growing up told to believe, told that was true. And I started to find, I I didn't believe all the things that I was told growing up. And the Marine Corps had a big part in that. So coming to the point of becoming an anarchist for me didn't happen until after I was already out of the military. And I was frantically looking at different ideologies across the board. I was reading lots of stuff from the left and the right and one thing i found about anarchism i think the i think the book that was the, was one of the most influential books that i would pick if i said what was the book th- that you read that was kind of the 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 nail in the coffin for you being an anarchist it would have been from Rudolph rocker was a book called anarcho syndicalism theory and practice where he talks a lot about the history of the labor movement and the reality that we don't talk about a lot in american
1: schools under capitalism what what about like did you ever get into like the crime think stuff? That I, was... did li- I did a
0: little, I did a bit. Uh, you know, when I discovered some, of it, there was some good stuff out there. Uh, and, and there's, I, I like a lot of the the propaganda posters and stuff that's out there that I've picked up at info shops and things like that along the mm. way as well. And I think that they put out that. Um, was that crime think or someone else that put out that that what's that the Rolling Thunder periodical? Oh yeah, yeah. I've got a bunch of those somewhere. Rolling Thunder, and I, I think it's called an Anarchist Journal of Dangerous Living or something like that.
1: Yeah. And yeah, they haven't made new ones of those for a long time. But yeah, that was like a Crime Think magazine that they had for a little bit. And Crime Think is kind of like maybe probably the or at least one of the best anarchist propaganda outlets out there is crime. <laughs> thing. And, and, you know, they have real slick production design and all that and try to have language that's more understandable because sometimes, you know, with any group of people like you can have like in group speak and to the point that like new people don't even know what they're saying and that can happen with anarchists too.
0: Oh, that happens a lot with anarchists. Like, let's oh, not yeah. lie. That's that's huge. We have our own little coded language. We have yeah. little info shots people show up at. We have our own little thing going on over here <laughs> that nobody else oh. pays attention to. Yeah. Considered quite fringe and extreme sometimes. <laughs>
1: yeah, but I'd say like like anarchism—a definition for that for me would be like just a that domination and top-down hierarchy. And bosses and all that that it's not good for people not good for human beings <laughs> and so like it's good so anarchists ideal would to have relationships and organization of society that's voluntary egalitarian people cooperating and sharing voluntarily with one another
0: i think one of the things i like i've been I, i've been pointing out lately as as for what i believe because i think when i say i'm an anarchist i think most people understand what i don't believe what i'm against most people will be like oh okay he doesn't like the government <laughs> and a lot of people like, oh, okay, he doesn't like capitalism, forms of hierarchy. I, I think a better way to present it is that look at these, these corporations that we have in power right now. They are in power. They make decisions like at a high level, like they are paying our lawmakers for a service when they lobby them. And we don't have a lot of freedom under them. They control most of our lives. They're, they're the ones driving inflation. They're the ones determining how safe our workplaces are a lot of times. Look at what's going on with Ohio right now, where I'm at, and the trains and everything else. I'd say, why don't we why don't we why don't we reexamine how we order society? Because we need order, right? Anarchy is order, is one thing they say. And to be a more egalitarian manner. One way that can be done is through things like, well, maybe democracy at the workplace. We decided that we wanted democracy in our given society, right? Like, oh, so we tried forms of democracy, which I would argue are not very democratic. <laughs> Representative democracy, I don't find democratic. But let's say you introduce something like democracy at the workplace. What is it? I'm, I'm I, what kind of things I want to see as an anarchism. Well, it wouldn't be a totalitarian ruler like Bezos or Musk making all the decisions and everybody suffering under it, but perhaps a way for people to be empowered to vote or have a say in that workplace at how those things impact them and what they're doing and be able to have a say in the things that they're specifically the expert at, which is their day-to-day job. You think that's a crazy idea?
1: I mean, one way I'd phrase it too is like that, like a workplace nobody understands the workplace better than the people that actually work there so like those are the ones that should be making the decision and similarly like with a a apartment building you know nobody knows the building better than the people that live there a lot more so than a landlord would Mm -hmm. and so so the idea is to get rid of bosses you get rid of landlords and you have the people that actually live or work at a certain place make the decisions instead of some authority figure that's barely even there i i love that idea and it's something that we're we have an we
0: have certain ideas that certain people need to be in charge of everything. Um we have certain ideas that certain things are natural. like there's we hear a lot of human nature. Usually, when I hear the term human nature, someone is throwing it out there at some kind of arbitrary bad behavior to say that, oh, that bad behavior cannot be stopped or changed. It must always be that way. That's human nature. When it's we're really just talking about ill behavior, someone decided to partake in, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. And going back to like nonviolent communication that we mentioned here too, like uh, about like those needs that motivate people. Like, so what you can ask, yeah, what needs are the person trying to make or meet when they do that so-called bad behavior?
0: Yeah, and that is a real thing that we can examine and see. The whole idea like anarchists a lot of times are into uh different schools of philosophies out there. One of the, one of the things out there that most people are not as widely aware of are things that we call restorative justice and transformative justice, and those exist in direct opposition to the concept of like criminal justice. Criminal justice being a punitive thing we force upon people. And restorative justice, the idea there is to restore, to make whole what is broken that caused the problem in the first place. So if you have someone stealing loaves of bread, we ask, why didn't this person have access to bread? Yeah. That leads us to the next thing if we discover that there's a larger systemic problem at hand transformative justice would be the approach to these uh injustices where we transform and change the overall structures power structures societies organizations in our lives saying society is going to have to change because this doesn't work for others so those are kind of some proposed ideas and now not just an idea an abstract things like transformative justice and restorative justice are actually being looked at around the world and implemented in different cities in different ways. Just not really taken as, oh, this is the alternative to criminal justice. But a lot of times it is a better option than just taking a gun to somebody and locking them in a cage.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) a better option compared to brutalizing people
0: <laughs> i mean at the end of the day yeah as an anarchist i believe that our system is is brutality it is it, it exists through a monopoly of force and i have issues with that i i, I worked as a uh, so here's i want to talk about something i worked in the marine corps and the public affairs office uh i i marketing was my thing, and we, we, we. One thing that I noticed there that got me questioning is what we didn't say. There were often, uh, we people would call the public affairs office when there was a given news story or event involving the military at that time point in time, Marine Corps specifically, and specifically the war was the wars that were going on in Afghanistan, and Iraq, and there was a lot of focus in a lot of the places I was at, and even the public affairs office. There are certain things that we did not want people to see. Or here it wasn't a lie there are things we don't want to be said in public there's an image the marine corps wishes to project correct yeah
1: there's
0: an yeah, image yeah there, those yeah. Are where you have public affairs the marketing departments yeah. for these companies the narratives that we get through things like media and stuff like that do affect the way we perceive said things, like the Marine Corps. There's a reason they tried to put a cap on what went out visually and what was released as press releases, because they didn't want a certain image, because once you get that, you get that in your head, you see it, that idea is there, right? Like,
1: like Abu Ghraib comes to mind, right away.
0: Yeah, that was a a PR disaster,
1: wasn't it? Yeah.
0: So I'm uh, my I found that when I discovered anarchism I was interested in the wide variety of them I really got into I think I was telling you before I don't think I've mentioned it yet on here but I was really getting into a philosopher or a social psychologist called George Herbert Mead who speaks about the the social construction of human beings and to try to make this as, as brief as possible he really focuses on how these different things Raise us how we learn. Like they, if you look at a, the young woman who was raised in a dog kennel without human interaction, mimic behaviors of dogs because that was her input. We tend to reflect the society around us because that's where we learn from. We're getting inputs from all kinds of places, right? We're getting inputs from our parents, how to walk, how to use the potty how to speak properly. or are being socialized. We're taking that up off the television from the comic book spinner rack. All these things are impacting us. Disney knows that. That's why they bought Marvel. That's why they bought Star Wars. <laughs> they know that nostalgia is there for these things that we have been socialized with. These things that we're familiar with.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's narratives there that impact us.
1: Oh, yeah. And like probably like one of the most common narratives that we get exposed to is like you have the good guys and then you have bad guys. So (laughs) right right away you have like good, bad. Yeah, it's a binary BS thing. But then (laughs) the good guys solve the problems by like killing or some way violently overpowering the bad guys. Yeah,
0: and it's always so here's the thing that's funny about that is the the bad thing, the worst thing is to use violence. Yeah, but the good guys are always, always
1: (laughs) doing it. Yeah, (laughs) it's the most common thing.
0: (laughs) Not just in not just in the Star Wars, not just in Picard, but like on our day to day, like real lived lives. I was trained to do violence as a good guy for the Marine in the United States Marine Corps like i'm just saying i
1: wonder like how many fictional murders a person watches on tv or movies on any given day well that's another (laughs) thing too like that that's after seeing a few things that i saw when i was enlisted i had a
0: progressively harder time watching films with certain acts of violence in them uh they they bothered me because it was one thing to watch some old grindhouse movie or some old horror movie it was another thing when you saw somebody you know uh, physically uh, i don't know how to phrase it they're dead uh, mm-hmm. harmed that way that mutilated and those types you know that kind of when you see that kind of violence in person it's an intense moment it's a different type of thing And it made me stop and really consider what I was watching on TV, just taking it and absorbing like a sponge, not giving a second thought to it. How often were those bombings on the news and this violence in the news, how much, how do we respond to it? I know how I responded to violence in person. It was horrifying, but it's just an abstract. It's just a fiction on television to most people. The reality, the horrifying reality of those situations, I don't think a lot of times we're able to fully take on the ramifications of
1: them. Because <laughs> I've been a fan, you know, a practitioner and all this of nonviolent communication for a long time. And I would just coming from that, I would love it if like there was like kind of more like a genre of like stories of like people finding creative nonviolent ways to solve problems. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's even possible to do in a way that's like engaging and stuff because it's not As dramatic, you know, you don't see like shooting and punching and stuff, but there's still like drama. People still have emotions. Even if things are solved non-violently, people still feel things. So you got to convey that somehow. Well, I'm
0: not talking about role-playing games for a minute. There's two things, two things I've noticed in role-playing games that are large central cruxes of play. The combat system and the violence, and then your accumulation of wealth through the monetary system and money. These are two Lynch plans of pay money, the capitalism <laughs> and power, and then warfare, fighting, and combat. Uh,
1: the state, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. So I'm just, so I'm often, i have often wrestled with this, but that seems to be driving forces for most things. You think that if we continue to perpetuate just the constant, these are the avenues where everything occurs, and we continue to reinforce it maybe we could look at something different. <laughs> Start imagining those. Start putting our efforts and our imaginations to building up something besides just the money and the
1: kill. Yeah. Well, it's almost like if it can be a way to like convey the drama of a mediation or a therapy session, basically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah when people... Learn more about each other in a deeper, more authentic way, or more learning, learning more about themselves in a kind of therapeutic way.
0: And I'll be honest, that's for one reason, one thing. I think that
1: role-playing games in general
0: are a positive form of entertainment, even better than like I would prefer them over things like uh, films and television shows. Is because it has a couple elements that those things don't have. And the, the film, I take in, I'm, I'm, I'm absorbing what's being put out. Any kind of biases that are reproduced in that media, I'm taking them in. However, subtly you take it in or some folks respond immediately when they see it. if it goes against your worldview, what you're comfortable with or your beliefs, it'll, you'll get those little spider sen- spidey senses tingling, right? Yeah. And I think most people do. If you see something diametrically opposed to your worldview on television, you respond, oh, oh, it's that you're just hearing something phrased in a different way often, than you're normally used to hearing it phrase like on the news people have a hard time telling what the difference between a fact what truth is and then realizing that every bit of fact every bit of information and truth is filtered through our biased minds the idea of unbiased is a is a myth you have to have a bias to be able to address a certain thing that's how human beings work right (laughs) so we have a bias and often the way we present things in media or like media being the television shows the tv shows the news of the documentaries whatever it is often the wording that is used and the way that we present them can show a bit of what that bias is for example if i'm referring to a group of um of Black men as thugs, the bias I have is that my assumption is Black men are thugs often. That's a problem. That's, that, that is racism at the end of the day, right? So how am I presenting these things on the six o'clock news when it says, well, what are you referring to people? Are you referring to this person as a dangerous criminal or a young boy? Both could be the same. It's depending, depending on what wording we choose to present them with. Now, framing the bad guy as the bad guy like in films we see that all the time what, what was it we just watched where they had to make sure we knew that the bad guy was bad what was that film we just did we just watch it on here
1: oh yeah well i know you've been watching quantum leap <laughs> i have been watching quantum leap <laughs> it was not Quantumian. that we didn't oh i watched creed 3
0: with my son oh, okay and there's a point where they have to hit home that Jonathan Major's character is the bad guy. They have to make it known that he's bad. So he he gets out of prison. He wants a, a fight at the, a, a shot at the, at the title and they throw in like one or two things here and there to make sure, you know, that he's bad. Number one, his first fight, he fought dirty, he used an elbow or something like that. And then he had some nasty words after the fight with Creed. So he really wasn't a bad guy when you watch the movie outside of these points that were just kind of thrown in there randomly to tell you which side you're going to root for in this it's kind of decided for you
1: (laughs) to kind of reduce it to this like simplistic binary of good and bad
0: yeah we like to do that if if i am the good i am always the good guy right
1: uh, i'm never the bad guy am i Uh, maybe in some circumstances (laughs) what what i I meant well right
0: yeah (laughs) i'm the good guy the other person has to be wrong the other person has to be the bad guy
1: but one thing uh, an exception that seems notable is wanda uh wanda maximoff right like Mm -hmm. because in wandavision she's the good guy but you can tell she's struggling with like this emotional mental health stuff but then by the end of that series she seems to be all better and like a bright future awaits her but then you have like doctor strange in the multiverse of madness and she's basically it kind of tells the story of her relapsing you know like whatever progress that she made in the wandavision series it's kind of she's gone backwards and she's <laughs> gone full-on neurosis and like threatening people's lives but you, you still never really you're not supposed to view Wanda Maximoff as the bad guy though just like she's the person that's struggling has a, a lot of difficult and traumatic stuff in her life
0: well and i think it's uh, here's the thing dude when we're presenting a conflict i think that's the that's the way that probably is the better approach to a conflict because most conflicts you know like we, we you talked about so let, let's talk about marshall rosenberg and non-violent communication for a minute can you tell folks who Marshall Rosenberg was, and maybe give them an idea of what his concept of NVC and nonviolent communication was.
1: And I guess if you want to say what kind of anarchist I am, I'm NVC anarchist. <laughs> 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 but Marshall Rosenberg, yeah, he he passed away in 2014 or 15. But he was a, uh, like he he actually was a part of, in some form, uh, part of the civil rights movement back in the 60s and such. And he also studied with uh, Carl Rogers, a famous humanistic psychologist person. And so with Marshall Rosenberg, he took some of Carl Rogers' ideas, but then went more into like the self-help world as opposed Mm. to therapy world. And uh, so one of them is like, get rid of these ideas of right and wrong, and should, and what have you, but, and focus more on needs, right? Like that one core idea with NVC is like, everything that people say, or think, or do, or feel, it's motivated by some kind of basic fundamental human need. And so, you know, we, we think about stuff like sleep and water and rest and all that. But there's other needs like more like emotional or interpersonal, a need for meaning, a need for belonging or a need for community or to be understood or to accomplish something. And so these kind of more intangible needs that we all have. And so with NVC, you're always trying to identify the need and not looking at things in terms of the judgments, but more like, okay, that person's trying to meet a need. Maybe they're not successful at it, but try to guess what needs are trying to be met. And then if they're doing stuff that's hurting people, so then the hurt that's a sign that some needs are not being met here. So what needs are not being met here, you know? And and then likewise with NVC, there's feelings, aspects. So feelings point to the needs, right? So you get positive feelings, happiness, delight, whatever those are needs are being met. And then if you have the unpleasant feelings, sadness, anger, loss, regret, whatever, like those are needs that are not being met. And a a large part of his communication, one of the things he focuses on is our language of
0: authority, the condemnation of language that we use, like how we, we label things in negative connotations and things like that and trying to shed that. And using the focus on that need as a way to communicate. So, hearing what's the need is, and something somebody's expressing something. So, like when my child is having a a, a temper tantrum, oh, this probably been years since this happened, and and, and screaming and yelling, and I, what's going? on? Oh, I want that bottle. You know, that's the need. We're having a fit. What is being said? Can I hear that? Now, with grown adults, things get more complicated. We 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 have We have needs. We have a need for safety, a need to be cared for, a need for those we love to feel safe and that our needs are met. Our needs are met, like your food, your shelter, things like that. And being able to decipher in different conflicts where it is that needs are not being met is kind of where he focused that at, as you said. Now, I've got a question. When he talks about that language of authority, how much of that language is just commonly thrown out there without any evaluation i'm going to call this bad or good this is a dictator this is a wrong this is a sin
1: yeah exactly yeah so again like all those concepts are kind of like authority or authoritarian like language right like yes yeah, sin or any idea of like have to or should mm-hmm. or duties and obligations and all that uh, do you have you uh,
0: one of the things is often um within within social structures and societies and stuff like that uh meritocracy is an interesting an interesting concept to look at
1: do you deserve to have a home and food in this meritocracy oh, <laughs> you I, earned and so, it oh and, and this goes into one thing i wanted to say about anarchism too right like i and it relates to nbc as well uh in that like I would want the motivation for the, when people do stuff like to be more intrinsic motivation instead of extrinsic mm-hmm. so intrinsic is kind of like you see like something of value in it that you want to contribute to like like you know i like helping people and contributing to their lives so that's why i want to do a good job at my work but the extrinsic would be like if you don't do x y and z you will get punished you go to jail you won't get paid you won't get health care like so that's extrinsic motivation so ideally like all the extrinsic factors like food, uh healthcare, shelter would just be provided for people and then people like get in touch with the intrinsic motivation for like the work that they do to contribute to others and society.
0: So I want to go into a huge
1: a huge discussion from here on the concept of hegemony
0: and and the dialectical process Whoa, and historical <laughs> materialism. But we're at a half an hour because all of these things do intertwine at some point in time. Looking at the language, I'm I'm gonna throw a, I'm gonna throw a bunch of books out there for you, a, little, a bunch of thinkers and writers, real quick. And I'm sorry, this got this way. Um, I'm gonna say that if I were to tell somebody that, I would say, hey, there's certain things that you could look at that would be eye opening. I would definitely say that Herbert Bloomer wrote a a book on George Herbert Mead. I would suggest that over reading George Herbert Mead's actual work. I would strongly suggest the book Anarchism is for Everybody by, Cy- by Cindy. Is Cindy Milstein wrote that, right? Anarchism is for Everybody?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I always suggest, I, I always suggest like Capital from Karl Marx is a huge read. I'm not saying go out there and read Capital, but if you, it's worth it. And it's worth reading Wealth uh, of Nations from Adam Smith with it simultaneously. It's eye-opening. But... Those aren't my suggestions. Uh, George Herbert means the n- a number one. I'd say that uh, Herbert Marcuse is another one that's been very influential in my view of the world. A lot of folks have written about Gramsci as well. There's a lot of areas that this discussion starts going into and delving into that we just don't have time for here today that I'm hopefully going to eventually get more into <laughs> as time goes by. Do you have any suggestions of thinkers, books, anything like that that people might want to check out?
1: Oh, well, like one great uh, introduction. I, I think it's Anarchy for uh, Every, what is it? Anarchy for Anarchy in Action by Colin Ward. Yeah. That yes. One. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then also, like, for lots of great anarchist writings you can find online on the theanarchistlibrary.org. There is a lot out there. And I would say don't
0: – I'd say expand your knowledge, read philosophy, read theory, read history, the, all those things. The more you get into, the more you learn, the more it makes sense. Uh, that Colin Ward book, though, Anarchy in Action, I have that on my shelf. I have never cracked it open. Now I'm going to have to pull it out and put it in Uh-oh. the rotation after you said that. I've got a really old copy I picked up years ago, and I have yet to
1: read it. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> Do you have anything to add to our weird uh, r- our weird political rant we just hijacked the world with?
1: Oh, no, just... Uh anarchism is amazing and, <laughs> and, beautiful and wonderful the beautiful idea is how when some people describe it like the Utopian <laughs> society that anarchism is pointing to and there's many different schools of thought of anarchism too so like the two of us are just like have our own unique perspectives and so i, I once heard it described like if you get 10 anarchists in a room you get 15 different kinds of anarchism so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think rudolph rocker said something that i think is worth pointing out yeah and uh Rudolph Rocker said that I I am not an anarchist because because of the end goal that I I, or something along those lines. I am an anarchist because I do not believe there is such thing as an end goal. I believe that we will constantly have to
1: improve our lives.
0: And that's what I want to do. Is that simple?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That means that you're an anarchist with a positive ideal. You don't want to just destroy everything.
0: No, I want things (laughs) to improve. I want the world. I want to see a much better world. A better world is possible. and and i'll tell you this and we're going way over like like there was a point in time where i may not be able to change the entire planet but uh i think i spoke on some recent episodes of the catholic worker house i was involved in that really opened my eyes to things some of these ideas and uh we had a, we had a free store there. We had, you come in the morning, get breakfast, you get a shower, but there was a shower house there. There were clothes. You come in, you need that. There's free free store with clothes and amenities you would need. And a lot of people would go through there. Um, I can tell you from my experience that I may not have been able to abolish the UN or the United States government or whatever it is. People think that is the main goal of an anarchist, but I was able to improve people's lives in a real way. And I can name names of those people and where those changes occurred. Now they lift them out of their material conditions. We have to work together harder to make that happen um the world things have got to change in our society because they are not going in a positive direction i don't believe
1: you're kind of talking about some of the anarchist values of mutual aid and solidarity
0: now we have a large discussion there see we want to talk about i said we want to talk about hegemony now we have to talk about solidarity and mutual aid as well if you've enjoyed what you've heard today (laughs) give us a positive review where can they find you online there parentheses Uh, i
1: yeah, I'm at uh, parenthesis i.blogspot.com and uh, at parenthesis i on Macedon.
0: I'm at wobbliesandwizards.com, the daily Wobblies and Wizards podcast, getting ready right to wrap up its first season. We'll be on a few more weeks here. At the end of the month, we'll probably be, uh,
1: things will be changing. Uh, but as always, everyone has their own rebellion.